So if you know us, you know that we love to focus on our shared humanity. And in other words, that's the threads that bind us together, those common traits, regardless of anything else that exists about us. And, you know, fundamentally, the things that make us human, after all. And so when we discovered our next guest, we felt like we found a kindred spirit because after all, his whole platform is called the Humanity Archive. I love it. And if you, like we do, believe in the power of humanity, basically in telling everyone's stories and being sure that those stories that we may not have learned in our own classes and schools growing up are being told now, especially for the sake of our children, then you're going to want to listen to our conversation with Jermaine Fowler. You're going to want to read his book, The Humanity Archive, and please share your thoughts with us once you do. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Absolutely. I'm Jermaine Fowler. I am the founder of the Humanity Archive. And what I like to say is it is a community of lifelong learners, and we use the experiences of humanity uh, grounded in history to enrich our lives and transform the world. But even more than that, it's all founded in this idea of overlooked history, looking back into history and pulling forward the narratives that have been excluded, that have been marginalized and erased in uh, the traditional telling of American history. And then from that, I have my uh, best-selling Black history book by the same name, The Humanity Archive, and really just try to be a public historian in such a way where I'm just uh, waging a war against ignorance and uh, trying to bring knowledge to the masses. So I'm here for all of what you just said, especially as the granddaughter of a historian, the daughter of an educator. I know we share that similarity. And there are so many things that resonated with me about what you said, and also your book, The Humanity Archive. And I really want to start with your book. And actually, I don't even want to start with your book. I want to start with libraries because I spent, like you, hours every weekend in libraries looking for books that would tell me things that I wasn't necessarily learning in schools. And I'm sure this surprises Sarah, who knows me well, 0% that these books were often history books and biographies because I was looking for that untold history. And I was that kid who, when I would bring my stack of books up to the checkout counter, the librarian would look at this stack and ask, like, are you sure your parents are okay with you reading this? I mean, okay, it was the 80s people, right? And so that's how that was done then, right? There was an actual librarian. It wasn't just you and a machine. Anyway, because I'd be putting up these books about the Holocaust or Stalin's Russia or the Japanese American incarceration on the checkout desk. And the checkout desk was probably about my height at that time. So when you talk in the book about your love of books and libraries and how foundational that was to you, that resonated with me from the start. And so can you share with our audience how that love shaped your love of history and your work going forward, including this book? Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned your parents uh, and that educational background, and both of my parents were teachers in the public school system, so the apple doesn't really fall that far from the tree. So that uh, on the one hand, that shaping and, and seeing them as an example, being educators and then having this love of books and learning and reading and just this intellectual curiosity that's been always, it's always been a fire that's been underneath me. So uh, like while other young kids were playing football and sports and doing these other things, I would literally catch the public transit down to the library 
and just spend hours and hours and spend my whole summers there, uh, you know, just reading my way out of the library. And a lot of that was uh, inspired by or really came to the forefront when I didn't see like myself in the history books at school. You know, it was a very narrow version of black history is definitely that idea of, uh, you know, this black Mount Rushmore of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And just knowing that there was more because my curiosity was driving me to more. And where is the most logical place you're going to find that information is in the, in the library. Right. So, uh, you know, that really was pivotal for me and really shaped who I am. And it's uh, just interesting to be able to look back and see the things that shaped you. And out of any other institution, be it public school or anywhere else, the library of all, all places was just this uh, place where everybody's represented. Right. Any, any culture, any people and any book you want to read is there. And I just think that this is a beautiful American institution. Uh, I might as well just call myself a library advocate because I talk about how that shaped me all the time. And uh, just a very big advocate of the library system. I love that for multiple reasons. One of the things that I thought of as you were both speaking about your love of libraries was, you know, we have sometimes white parents being like, what can I do differently? It's like, well, go to your local library and figure out what books they're stocking, what they're ordering and request that they make purchases of books that have different narratives than the ones you might be predominantly seeing in there. The second thought I had was, I'm so curious, this is just an open-ended question or an observation, but I read fiction novels. Like I was this novel kid and I never read history. I came to my love of, of history and appreciation for that lens so much later in my life. And I'm like, is that a personality thing? Is that an exposure thing? But I appreciate that you two have had that long lasting like through line in your lives that you've always been interested in real people's stories and not just make-believe. And it makes me think, how do I continue to ensure that that's something that I'm bringing to my children as they grow up too? So they're not just reading fantasy novels or sci-fi and that sort of stuff, really having a better rounded set of books in the house, not just from characters, but the types of books too. So, And I think that biography could be a good segue from the, the novel to the, the history, because it's all about the story at the end of the day. So, you know, if you're kind of introducing kids to history biographies that are very well written about certain figures. I think that would be a, a great way to kind of translate that novel to history. Because, you know, a lot of people think history is boring and it's dry and, you know, a lot of people shy away from history, but there's definitely some, uh, especially now, there's a lot more engaging history being written. And I think, you know, we have to combat that idea that history has to be dry or boring, uh, you know, because it all ties into that story and that empathy. The same thing that you would get from a novel, you can get from historical autobiography and the reading of history as well. That's an excellent point. You know, I even think about for the kids level, like the who is or who was like the series of books to get kids started in that realm. So thank you for pointing that out. But speaking of the people in history, one of our May episodes really focused on the lens through which we tell history and how people's like you referred to before, how people's stories get erased or changed or basically fundamentally transformed depending on what lens we're using to tell that story. And I now know that growing up, that lens was always this white lens when it came to uh, the history of our country. So can you talk a little bit more about the whitewashing of American history and how that's erased, what you noticed when you were a child, that Black history in this country? That's a very big question. And that's the question that I sought to answer in writing this book and just lay out a case and argument uh, for how Black history has been uh, more so now, I would say whitewashed, but going back, you know, just erased, you know, in, in general, um, you know, where the stories weren't being told, where, 
you know, you would go into libraries and they didn't even have any other sections in the libraries through the 1960s other than slavery, right? So then you had these Black scholars who had to recategorize and actually put Black art and, you know, Black science and these other sections because everything was just focused on slavery, not only slavery, a version of slavery that said that slavery was benign, that slave masters weren't cruel, that there was this uh, kind of weird form of socialism that was actually helpful to Black people who were inferior from, you know, the coast of Africa, you know, so you had all these very pernicious stereotypes uh, incorporated through this white lens, through this Eurocentric lens of Black history that sought to uplift white supremacy. And so now, People have gotten a little smarter about how they go about that. So there's a lot of dog whistle politics and people don't name things the same, but it's still the same whitewashing. And it's still that same idea that people don't want to talk about things that are uncomfortable. This idea that American history has to follow this line of progress, you know, this arc of justice and that history doesn't ebb and flow and go back and forth. Uh, so if it doesn't fit that narrative, then that's where you see these battles that are playing out this kind of 1776 versus 1619, you know, you have on the one hand, you know, America is this exceptional nation and we shouldn't focus on any of the atrocities of the past. We should move forward versus this idea that no, this nation was founded on these white supremacist ideas that we have this history of racism that still embeds itself within the institutions of America. And we have to go back and look at the root of that to be able to move forward to a, a better future. So that's, you know, that battle we see playing out in these cultural wars right now in history. I mean, I think where I find myself is I definitely take that approach that we, you know, we have to expose the whitewashing. We have to wage this war on ignorance. But I think what makes my platform a little different is I'm always going back to that underlying idea of humanity. I have a quote behind me on my wall that says, I am human, so nothing human is alien to me. So regardless, however much I uh, dig into these very serious issues, I feel like I have to fall back on something to keep hope, right, that we all smile, we all cry, you know, we have these things in common still uh, while I'm combating these things just to keep me grounded. I love that. And we're going to come back to the concept of shared humanity in a second. I want to go back to something that you said because you spoke about Black scholars, right, trying to sort of recategorize history and really pulling out the threads that have been just lost. So I would love for you to share, because I thought this was so powerful in your book about when you talk about the work that the Black scholars have been doing, you know, some examples of how Black scholars have fought to change that over time. And then more personally, and you've sort of alluded to this as well, what has that progress been, you know, throughout your own life? Because I, I asked this kind of from a personal point too, because I have a fifth grader or almost middle schooler who is studying early American history. And so we have these conversations a lot, especially as he's showing up as the one Black kid in his class about what is that history and what are the books saying and, and what's the true history? And so I may have gotten him to the point where he's like, yeah, there are these old white dudes who came over and they made these packs that really helped only old white dudes who own land. And so he may be He's definitely learning a different history than I did, right? But the concept of people having to fight to tell their own history, you know, I would love if you could share more about that. Yeah, I think that's uh, something a lot of people don't think about enough is that these things don't just happen. It's not like, uh, you know, those in power just woke up one day like, we're going to tell a more accurate version of history. It doesn't work like that. You know, it took for, you know, Black scholars in this instance or other scholars of color to tell their own stories and, and move those stories forward. I tell in my book the story of uh, Dorothy Porter Wesley, who uh, recovered Black history 
over decades and decades and decades through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and spent her whole career. She was the one who was recategorizing Black history, the university that she was at in terms of uh, broadening the scope of the fullness of Black humanity beyond uh, this simple slavery narrative, you know, into all the other cultural aspects of Black existence. So you have this long tradition of Black scholars, Black men, Black women, uh, Black people who are reclaiming history, who are going into, uh, you know, these libraries that, uh, you know, they're, they're not seeing their history and having to dig, dig, dig uh, for these stories. Some of them traveled across the globe from old castles to places in Europe, you know, searching for artifacts and, you know, trying to pull this evidence together that's not easy to find. So, you know, I can only imagine what they went through and just me standing on their shoulders. I just have a deep appreciation for those, for the originators who, uh, you know, had so many barriers they had to face just to be able to tell the truth about their own history, right? They didn't have access to the same resources, you know, that a lot of white scholars had and, you know, these things that they had to go through. So, um, you know, I definitely talk about that a lot in the book and there's still work to be done. And I just am very appreciative now of where we are because a lot of these Black scholars are coming forward now to tell a different story and reclaim this history. There's this new kind of renaissance and, you know, I'm just happy to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, part of a generation of people who are able to bring more fullness to these stories. It strikes me that the way you told that story and making sure people realize that it wasn't easy and it's not necessarily glamorous work, but I think a lot of times people gloss over what people's real life experiences were, even thinking about like so many people now, Martin Luther King Jr. was amazing. And then you realize how he was perceived in the time that he was living and the work that he really had to do on a day-to-day basis. And that takes me back to what your shirt says, humanity. What we were just talking about, that concept that if we focus on our shared humanity, what the experiences of our lives are as we go, then that's how we get to collective unity and collective action. And for the work that Misasha and I do, that humanity first focus is a philosophy that really resonates with us. I think that has informed our approach in our work the entire time that we've been doing it. And so can you talk a little bit more about humanity. Like how and why did this become a central premise in your book? I think, you know, when I first started my whole platform, that just really resonated with me and not like a a narrow form of, you know, just humanity, right? Just a deeper thought and ideal and ethos that I want to tell complex stories. You know, I want to dig deep. I want to go beneath the skin. I want to go under the surface. I want to see why people did the things they did. I want to be able to zoom in on the particulars of of any group uh, and then zoom out to those universal things that we can all relate to, right? It doesn't matter whether you're studying ancient Greece or ancient Africa or Asia, wherever you're looking at. I mean, you know, there's things that we share as humans. uh, And I think that's often overlooked because of the, uh, you know, especially the media and this kind of uh, divisive narrative that's portrayed, you know, and there are differences that we have and things that absolutely need to be worked on, worked out. There are extremes that are never going to come together, but I I didn't really see anybody kind of uh, centering this kind of humanity narrative in association with history and uh, sharing history. And that's the perspective that I wanted to come from. That's usually people are just in their corners and speaking at it from their angle. And it's, uh, you know, but I didn't see anybody trying to bring it all together. So for me, that humanity ethic is what I call it. You know, um, no matter what I'm talking about, what is something that I can find that is this underlying thread that that ties it all together and ties us all together. So uh, I think that makes my approach unique compared to some other uh, ways that people 
present history, which usually focuses really heavy on the atrocity or really heavy on the patriotism side. I think that allows me to look at it all and, and bring it all together in a different way. I appreciate that. And I think, you know, in the book, it's evident that you're writing from a place of someone who who loves history, right? As opposed to any sort of professional qualifications around that, like this love of history is so powerful and so apparent when you're drawing those through lines. Um, and I also want to go back to something that you said at the start about, you know, the Humanity Archive and your whole platform being about lifelong learning. Because, you know, I listened to your podcast episode on the slavery trail of tears and learned a whole bunch in 12 minutes, you know, and, and I think the concept for Sarah and me as well is that we are lifelong learners. And one way that, well, I'll just speak for myself, one way that I learned was when we wrote our book, because I you know, the process of writing a book, you're researching and you're thinking about things in ways that you have never really thought about before. Um, and it's very eye-opening. So in the process of writing the Humanity Archive, what was something surprising or something that stood out to you as, you know, something new or this, you know, moment of clarity that you learned as you were writing? Yeah. And I, I think with that concept, just to speak to that real quick, as far as lifelong learning, um, you know, I try to tell people, because people will say, you know, so much and, you know, you're so knowledgeable. I tell people like a lot of the things that I'm learning, I am learning in real time with you. It's just knowledge to me is not about what you know. It's about how curious you are and how willing you are to go beyond what you know. And also to admit when you don't know something, right? And be honest with yourself. Like, I don't know this. I need to dig deeper. I need to go further. I need to research more. So that has fueled my work. And that's why I'm able to bring such a broad swath of knowledge to people because I'm just ever so curious buying more and more books and going to more and more libraries and just trying to call all this information. But as far as, you know, your other point in, in terms of what really stood out to me, you know, what was my wow moments, you know, in writing of this book. And I think for me, it was just a journey of honesty, you know, and looking at myself and finding myself in this history, finding my own humanity in this history and seeing myself in these stories, you know, and just really trying to understand what it means to be human, what it means to, uh, you know, be black in America, what it means to, you know, for black women in America, what it means for uh, the, the global experience of black people as they traveled across the diaspora. You know, so I, I talk about everything from white supremacy uh, and, and anti-black history, which there was some shocking uh, things there. Uh, you know, just for instance, you know, you'll find out a random thing like the Oklahoma panhandle, for instance, that the geography of the United States is, is based in slavery from, uh, you know, slavery above this line was illegal, the uh, the parallel there. And then, you know, instead of Texas making banning slavery, they just cut off the top of their state to keep slavery legal there. So there's like those facts like that that you find. But I think overall, it's just finding yourself over and over again in, in the stories for me. That was just the biggest moments for, for myself in writing the book. And that's such a, a beautiful thing, right? To continue to grow as a person and to learn as we teach and share. And that curiosity is such a, I already wrote down that I'm going to pull that quote for social media. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that. Something that I wanted to ask was at the, I think it's at the start of part four, but you ask, what's the trade-off between excellence and equality? And where does the line between personal responsibility end and the social contract begin? Where do you come out on this? Yeah, that's another good question. That's another good. I mean, that's I wanted to ask that because typically you see it framed and you have on the one end this kind of Republican idea going back to Reagan of this trickle down economics, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, you know, capitalism is the greatest 
system that's ever existed and anybody can make it within, you know, if you try kind of uh, a work hard idea, you know, so I wanted to juxtapose that with this idea of, okay, what is the trade-off then with equality, right? Because everybody's not going to make it if they work hard. There are people who start from a different place, uh, whether that be socioeconomically or based on race or gender or other factors, that their starting line is far, far, far behind someone else. And this whole idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't really add up. On the other hand, there is levels of responsibility that everybody can take, you know, to do better and be better and so on and so forth. So, you know, how do you balance that motivation with the fact this, of this glaring inequality that we all see, even as we walk around our own cities and see homeless people next to skyscrapers here in, in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, where I'm at or just elsewhere. So I think I come out with, you know, just saying that there has to be a striving for and an action toward the balance between the two, because, you know, I want to live in a world where people can strive and, and, work toward excellence, but I don't want people to burn out from that. I don't want people to, to die or trying to reach this excellence. I want people to know that we can have a, a more equal world too, where, um, you know, the, everybody can make it, you know, and that's the kind of world that I would like to see. So I use a lot of historical examples of people who strive for excellence, but then also people who were more striving for equality and kind of bounce back and forth between those two ideas using historic examples, uh, you know, people in, in either either or camp and, uh, you know, also showed that, you know, a lot of people who thought that they were safe, you know, thought that they made it, uh, whether that be black people or black faces in high places or the black middle class. Um, a lot of times they end up finding out that race still plays a factor. So you have this uh, intersectional um, reality still you know, just because you get wealth in America doesn't mean that you're going to be treated equally. So, you know, I'm just playing around with these different ideas in that chapter in the book. And I'm not sure if I ever quite answer the question, but I even say in the beginning of the book, I have more questions than answers. And, you know, I'm not here to, uh, you know, act like I have answers. I'm just here to spark brains and excite curiosity in people and hope to send them off to ask their own sets of questions and draw their own conclusions and hopefully grow from the questions that I'm uh, causing you to ask for yourself. Well, I love that you are asking this question, right? And the other questions that you ask in the book, because I think that these are such important questions, you know, considering when we think about even the things that are happening in, in the news this week, right? Like student loan forgiveness and the questions around that, or the fact that it's very likely that the Supreme Court is going to rule against affirmative action, you know, in a matter of days. And how do we look at our society? How do we balance that? How do we find that balance? One of the things that Sarah and I really focus on is how do we concretely, you know, give people the way, a path forward, right? How do we get them into, you know, listening and learning, but then moving that into action, right? And changing the course and helping make that, these narratives bigger and our history more expansive and that ability to find that balance easier, so I wanted to ask, and Sarah, you know, mentioned one way already that that this could happen, right? By having white parents talk to, go to their libraries and find out what stories are being shared, what books are there, what books are not there. Um, and especially in a time of book banning, you know, and, and a narrowing of curriculum and a narrowing of ideas instead of an expansion of that, you know, these are critical questions for people to be asking. So what other ways, you know, especially as, our average listener is probably not a historian or a politician, but how do we personally ensure that this whitewashing of history doesn't continue to happen, that we're not narrowing that lens, we're instead 
broadening it and how, you know, the Humanity Archive is about the Black experience in history not being erased in this country, that and other experiences of people of color. How do we make sure that these stories keep getting told? I think the biggest way is just to, to amplify people who are, are doing the work right. There's, uh, you know, not just myself, but there's a lot of people who are sharing this history, who are writing about this history from books that, you know, I could come up with a long list of books from just uh, many, many cultures in America, from indigenous history to, uh, you know, Asian American history to black history to uh, Hispanic history. All these histories, you know, have people that are at not only advocating for, but who are writing uh, to tell the truest stories, you know, and what I see is a lot of times, you know, people ask what can they do? People want an action plan, but they're not actually supporting people who are already doing the work and doing a very wonderful job of doing the work right. So people just kind of fall back to, you know, what's comfortable and, you know, the books that they were already reading, but there's always people doing the work. Uh, so I think the first step is just to amplify that, to buy those books, to find those resources, just make sure you're supporting people who are already doing it and uh, bring a more diverse view of American history and, and world history. I think that's such an important point, because I think that sometimes, to your point, when people ask, what can I do? It's it's sort of an individually driven question where you then that person is like, well, if I'm not at the forefront or I'm not creating my own thing, then, you know, this becomes impossible and I can't do anything but to support the voices. Sometimes I think that every single Q&A I get, I get the question of like an action plan or what can I do? And I'm like, you know, I just wrote a whole Black history book. Like you're asking me, what can I do <laughs> like more of like read this book and, and learn from it and grow from it. I, I think that question, uh, you know, often it comes from a lack of a willingness to want to do more on your own, even when people are giving you like all these things, you know, people want people to drag them along a lot of times or, or you know, I, I can't drag you to truth. You got to go and you can only lead a horse to water. They have to drink, right? There's kind of that analogy. I mean, I think that's what I see in that question a lot, uh, you know, a lot of the white audience will ask that question in my Q&As. Pretty much every Q&A that I do after a keynote speech, I'll get that question. And that's kind of how I answer that. Like, you have to do the work. You have to go beyond. You know, it's not up to me to tell you exactly what to do and spell it out for you. It's already there for you. A hundred percent. Sarah, I hope you're putting that quote on our social I'll break media. that down too. Yes. <laughs> You know, Jermaine, we could spend so much more time talking about the book and talking about your platform and, you know, the podcast. And but I want to make sure that, you know, we haven't left out anything that you would like to share with our audience. So what haven't we asked that, that you would like to share? Oh, you asked some very uh, great questions, some thought provoking questions and uh, questions that even have, have caused me to think and rethink, you know, things that I've written in terms of uh excellence and equality and the whitewashing of history. I mean, for me, it's just, I just tell people never stop learning. It really does go back to that lifelong learning. For me, keep educating yourself. The learning doesn't stop when you, uh, you know, throw your cap up in the air after uh, university or it doesn't stop when you get your diploma. It's, it's a lifelong process and not only learning, but unlearning because there's so much that we learned that was wrong, that was mistaught. You know, we've been miseducated. Uh, I was just talking the other day about how in school we sung the song of Christopher Columbus, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know, you have these things that are ingrained in your head in this narrative uh, that really erased the whole indigenous experience, you know, with that song and with the history that I learned and just having to re-teach myself and unlearn some of those things to bring a more accurate history to bear. And I think that's just true of 
you know, the unfortunate circumstances that we still find ourselves with the public education system. We have to learn, unlearn, relearn, and make sure we're doing that for our kids as well. So, you know, that's my main thing that I, w- I would tell people and that I uh, try to tell people every day with my work. I like that a lot. It is so much about the responsibility we bring to our own lives and the choices that we make to engage or passively cruise on by. And so I think, and I hope people hear that last phrase that you just said and take it to heart and choose to lean in and to continue to challenge themselves to learn and be open to so many more narratives that we were not taught as children. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, So my central hub is www.thehumanityarchive.com. That's www.thehumanityarchive.com. And there uh, you'll find my book. You'll find my online history courses. You'll find my links to my social media where I'm sharing every single day different aspects of overlooked history uh, through reels and short video and slides uh, so you can learn that way with me. And I'm just sharing knowledge uh, through my social, through my website and keynote speeches and just trying to bring, just meet the people where they are and uh, bring this overlooked history as far and wide as I can. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you all. Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>